And uh, in case there's anybody here that doesn't know what I'm talking about, it's been a popular movie, it's been a popular book, both in Canada and around the world. Um, but it was a, it's, it's, it's a, a race of species or individuals that we understand are not real. It's, it's, a, it's about little creatures called hobbits. They're about, I don't know, three feet tall. They've got furry feet. Um, they love their tea. Kind of remind me of Englishmen. <laughs> and uh, anyways, very, very fascinating, very interesting. And I went on to read The Lord of the Rings, which I also read about five times, maybe more. It's a big, thick, three-volume series. I was fascinated to know where these where these people came from, where do orcs come from, where do, uh, where do the elves come from, where do the, again, where do the hobbits come from? And then I read another book, The Silmarillion, or tried to read it. I don't know if anybody's tried plowing through that. Um, it reads like, uh, like a telephone book, really. <laughs> Very difficult to get through. But I, I, I had this desire, this longing to know, where, where do these creatures come from? What, what was in J.R. Tolkien's head? What would he state as, as being the, the source, the origins of these creatures? And, of course, you do get a hint at some of it. And um, very long story, just long. Uh, I never did find out the origins of, of a lot of the creatures. I don't know where they came from. I don't know if they had a god. I don't know uh, what they do with sin. I, there's no answers to these things. However, I... I do know the origins of, of human beings, which is far more important than hobbits, wouldn't you agree? And, and orcs. Um, people want to know where they came from. They want to know, why am I on this earth? Why am I here? What's my purpose in life? In the late 70s, Calvary Temple uh, had a, an evangelism crusade. They produced a book, uh, I think it was called uh, The Why Book, something like that, um, some of you who were there in the late 70s, early 80s will remember that. And we actually delivered them door-to-door. Great big, beautiful, four-color uh, book that sort of describes what life's about and answer the question, why am I here? And then back in 2002, Rick Warren came up with a book called The Purpose Driven Life. Some of you remember that. And again, it answers the question, why am I on this earth? We want to know what our origins are. And by the way, that's what Genesis means. It's, just, it, it's, a, it's, it's a Latin word that borrows from the Greek, the Greek word genesis, same thing. And it means origins. We want to know where do we come from. So 3,500 years ago, approximately, we don't know exactly, the book of Genesis was written. And it tells us where we came from. It answers questions like uh, how the world came into being and how we were formed and why are we the way we are? And where does sin come from? And why is there suffering and pain on the earth? The book of Genesis can be divided into two sections. There's what we call the uh, primitive history and the patriarchal history. The primitive history deals with, first of all, the creation, and then the fall of man, and then it talks about the flood. And by the way, in case you didn't notice it, the voice on that video clip you just heard was the voice of... Russell Crowe, who we all know is Noah. And, uh, and, and, and that's what we're going to be looking at. So in just a few weeks, you want to make sure that you're here for that. We're going to talk about uh, also the, the, the Tower of Babel. 
and uh, how we've got multiple languages and multiple uh, um, races on the face of the earth. Where did that all come from? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about our origins. And then there's a patriarchal history which deals with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. But today, we're talking about the fall of man. We're talking about the creation of Adam and Eve, and we find that in the book of Genesis chapter 2. And the Bible says that God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, breathed life into him. And we call this being created in the image of God. That is because we have the, the nature of God in the sense that we have the ability to love. We want to love. We want to be loved. We all want to be in relationship. This is, this is what it means to be created in the image of God. It means that we, we have a sense of, of morality, a sense of, of right and a sense of wrong. But the thing is, is God only made Adam. And Adam had the job of naming all the animals. And, uh, and then finally God says, man, it's not good for man to be alone. And how many women know that's true? Yeah, it just doesn't work, does it? So God creates Eve out of Adam's side. And God, it's the, Bible, the Bible says God brought Eve to Adam. And Adam says, at last. That's what it says in the scripture. At last. Or finally. Finally, something really good. And God looks at all this and he says, it's all good. It's all really good. And then the Bible goes on to say in Genesis chapter 2 that, that they would become one flesh. And for this reason, a man would leave his family and cleave to his wife. And then the, the chapter ends by saying that Adam and Eve were naked. And everybody was cool with that. There was no shame. In fact, we sometimes refer to it as the time of man's innocence. The world was a wonderful place at that time. There was no sin. It was a wonderful place to be. In the Garden of Eden, the Bible says that God will walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, fellowship with them, enjoying the relationship with them. Remember, we've been created in the image of God. We've been created for relationship with him. Now, I wish that we could stop at Genesis chapter 2. But how many know that there is a Genesis chapter 3? And this is when things get really, really ugly. What happened there? Well, you know that that's the time when sin entered in. But the good news is, is that in chapter 3, there's a solution, which we're going to talk about this morning. So first of all, let's talk about what happened. Every five years or so, uh, our family does a puzzle. Or somewhere, I'm somewhere working on, someone's working on a puzzle, and and. I don't know if anybody here ever works on puzzles. It's not something that we find terribly stimulating. But sometimes that's all there is to do. How many know what I'm talking about? And so we got to, so I like everything. I tackle that puzzle the way I tackle everything. Let's, let's get the job done. Okay. I think puzzles are supposed to be something that you, you drink coffee and you chat and you take the whole afternoon. Like I want that done in an hour so we can get on to the next thing, right? So I'm like, where's the, where's the lid for the puzzle? Where's the puzzle box lid? Let's set that up so we can start figuring out what all these mysterious little pieces are. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And, of course, the very first thing, what do you do? What's the first thing? You do the 
You do the corners, that's right. You get those corners in, in place, and then you start building from there. And you start making sense out of all these mysterious pieces until the puzzle comes together. Well, folks, that's exactly what Genesis chapter 3 is. It's really the, the, the puzzle box lid that helps us understand why things are the way they are, why our life is the way it is, why we struggle the way we do. Why do we have these times of depression and why do we have uh, out-of-control appetites and, and lusts and, and how do, how do our, our feelings get hurt and why do we have temptations and how do we deal with those temptations and how do we fall into temptation? And uh, why do I fight with my spouse and why do I fight with my kids and why do I lose my temper? It takes all these mysterious pieces of our life, and it helps bring order and bring sense. Now, I'm not saying you're going to solve all the mysteries of your life through reading Genesis chapter 3 or by reflecting on it, but it's going to help you understand a lot. So the very first thing that you recognize that in Genesis chapter 3 is the foundation for two of the cardinal Christian doctrines of the church, and it's the doctrine of the fall of man and the doctrine of original sin. And by the way, uh, for those who are interested in the doctrines, we're going to be holding another class this fall. Um, Jared and, and Aaron said they really wanted to take that class, so we're going to put one on just for them. So if you'd like to join Aaron and uh, Jared and me, uh, it's going to happen in the fall. Watch for that. We're going to be signing up for that. But let's talk about this, the, the fall of man. What happened? We started out being created in the image of God, a time of innocence, there was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no sin, the creation was perfect, everything was untainted. And then they fell. And then what happens is that original sin enters in. So the sin of Adam and Eve is what you and I, this is what original sin is, the sin that Adam and Eve committed and that, and that they had in themselves is what we inherit now from our parents. That's what original sin is. Well, we're not going to get too deeply into that, but let me read to you the scripture. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 to 17, here's what it says. Now, remember, this is when everything's cool, everything's good, sin hasn't entered in yet. Um, before I read this, can I have these lights on, please? Could you do that for me? I'm, I'm, I'm actually uh, getting older now, and I can't see as well, so I need these lights on. Thank you very much. That's all part of, this, uh, part of the fall. It's all... <laughs> We're in a state of decay. I stand before you as one in decay. (laughs) Proof that the scripture is true. Okay, let's take a look at this passage of scripture, Genesis chapter 2, 16 to 17. Thank you, by the way. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, just, just to give you some context, At this point in the history of mankind, there are no Ten Commandments, there are no rules. How many have ever been to a swimming pool and you see, as soon as you walk in, the rules of the swimming pool, and there's like 80 of them, and and I've never seen a kid stand before them and say, well, let's memorize these so we don't make any mistakes in the pool. No vomiting in the pool. Uh, No rules. No laws. In fact, it's, it's a foreign idea. It just, we just don't know anything about that. There's only one rule. Only one thing that God asks Adam and Eve to do. And I'll tell you, it's a faith test. This is proof of our love for God. 
God says, look, you know what? You can have anything you want. The garden is yours. Eat anything you want. There's only one tree I don't want you to go near. Stay away from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. And I'm warning you that if you do eat it, then you're going to die. And then you know what happens after that. So they've been given the test, the test of love. And how many know what faith is, by the way? Faith is believing God and doing what he says. This is where it begins, folks, right at the very beginning. And can I just say this before I go any further? This is all God has ever wanted from Genesis to Revelation. Throughout the history of mankind, this is all God has ever wanted from you and me, is that we believe him and do what he says. Could you say that with me? Believe God and do what he says. Say it again. Believe God and do what he says. Folks, this is our supreme proof of our love for him. Jesus says, if you love me, you will what? You will keep my commands. You will obey my commands. This is the proof of love. And so God's saying, show me that you love me by putting your faith in me. How many know today that God never holds anything, anything good back from us? How many, how many know that today? God does not hold anything good back from us. Why? Because he loves us. And so God says, don't do something. It's because what? He loves us. And so many people have this idea of Christianity, is that God is all about rules and do's and don'ts and beat you up if you get it wrong. That's not God. I can tell you, my kids know that I'm a pretty strict dad. And I've given rules to them. It's not because I want to make their lives miserable. It's because I want them to have a great life. I want them to have a wonderful life. And so it is with God. So God says to Adam and Eve, don't touch the fruit, because if you do, you're going to die. So we roll along to Genesis chapter 3. And it's, you know, you begin the chapter, Genesis chapter 3, and you just kind of hold your breath. I mean, you know how it's going to end because, well, we've all read it before. But you just hope and you just pray, oh, Adam and Eve, don't fail this test. Because this is a test. And so there they are, and the snake comes along. And I'm going to just say this, because some people are sitting here today saying, well, what, is the, what exactly was the snake, and what was it like? I don't know. Remember, the Bible's not a science textbook. It's a text, it's a book about relationship with God. So there's lots of unanswered questions. So I'm not going to pretend that I know, and I'm not going to answer them with, you know, with, well, maybe it's this and maybe it's that, because that doesn't get us anywhere. Let's stick to the point. God says, don't eat the fruit. Satan shows up in some form. We don't understand it. In the, uh, I was Googling it, just looking it up just for fun the other day, and uh, on the tower, no, not the tower, pardon me, the, um, the Cathedral of Notre Dame, it's got a carving of Adam and Eve at the, at the tree, and then there is the snake, and the snake is shaped like a woman. <laughs> yeah, so, and, the, and the woman's name is Lilith. And, and so, and this is interesting, so many of the early church fathers, they thought that, that all of the problems we have on the face of the earth today are because of women. And men, we know this is true. No, no, I, 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 I'm joking. It's not true, is it? 
Yeah, no. I'm, I'm glad you're laughing because it tells me that you know it's nonsense. Okay. And I'm going to tell you, this, in some people's minds, this notion that, you know, women are second-class citizens and that women are not equal to men is this utter nonsense. That's why God created Eve out of Adam's side, not out of his feet or out of his head, out of the side, because they're equals. Whew, I recovered. Yeah. <laughs> So here's, here, here's what we read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says this. When the, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And then she gave it also to her husband with her, and he ate. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. This is a reversal of what God intended for Adam and Eve. God intended that Adam take care of his wife. Did Adam take leadership in his home? Not to be her boss, but to care for her, to take responsibility for his family. And somewhere along the way, he abdicated. Listen, this is really important. I'm, I'm answering some of these puzzles that you've got. Why are things the way they are? So Eve, Eve usurped Adam's position as the leader in his home, as the one who's responsible for his family. And Adam abdicated. He said, yeah, go ahead, Eve, take charge. And so, we, now listen, this is, we've got big problems here now. So now they've eaten of the, of the fruit, and prior to this, you know, Satan's got this conversation going on with Eve. God, did God really say you, you shouldn't eat the fruit? Yeah, he said we shouldn't eat, and we shouldn't touch it either. Well, God didn't say that. Hey, listen, listen. You start getting into trouble when you start adding or taking away from the, from the word of God. How many know what I'm saying today? And this, was, this is the beginning of her problem. She thought she could actually enter into this dialogue with the tempter. She didn't realize that the tempter was far smarter than she was. The fact of the matter is that she just didn't know what sin was. She didn't know what evil was. And so the snake says, well, you're not going to die. You're not going to die. In fact, Satan says, if you take the fruit... You're going to be like God. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. Actually, Eve, the truth be known, God's holding out on you. He's trying to, trying to deprive you of something. He's trying to, he's holding, he's not giving you everything. You think that he loves you. You think that he's giving you everything you want, but the fact is, he's not. And so, Eve saw the tree that it was good for food. Ah, it's a delight to the eyes. Hmm. The tree was desirable to make one wise. She thought, man, that's cool. That's cool. So she took from its fruit and she ate it. And of course, you know what happens. Sin enters in. Suddenly, the innocence, the fact that they were naked, they became aware of it and they became ashamed. We weren't doing this before. And we find the very first sacrifice in the Bible. The Bible says that God kills an animal and covers Adam and Eve with the pelts of these animals, the first clothes. The age of man's innocence is over. Sin has entered in. Now, I've got to just say this to you before I go any further. What we read here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, whether you realize it or not, 
is a perfect description or definition for all of human problems, of all of human struggles. In fact, John restates this very thing in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Look what it says here. It says, For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from the world. Now, look at this. This is a, an exact um, parallel verse to Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. Can you go back to that verse for a moment, please? One, two. There. Thank you. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. Look at that. So it's good for food, a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. Now go back to John. Sorry about this. So the world offers only, what, uh, only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see. Do you see the parallel? And then and, and pride in our achievements and possessions. We, we have since called this the lust, of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Folks, these, these three things, these, this unholy trinity sums up all of the pain and the suffering and the temptation and the struggle that you experience in your life today. John says, for the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and our possessions. And John says, these are not from the Father, but are from this world. Now here's what you and I need to understand. You and I struggle with these things. We, we have a craving for physical pleasure. You think about this right now, about the, the problems that you are facing in your life or have faced in your life. Uncontrolled appetites. You've got to have more, 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 more. A craving for everything we see. We sometimes call this lust. Got to have more. I was reading recently that 68% of men who go to church struggle with pornography, internet pornography. We got a big problem here, folks. And then it says pride, pride in our achievements and our possessions. Look at me. Look what I have. Look at the car I'm driving. Look at the house I live in. Look at my clothes. Look at my haircut. Look at my haircut. <laughs> And it goes on and on. And, and John says, all this comes from the world. This doesn't come from God. And so why do you think, why do you think that the preachers in North America who appeal to your lusts are so popular? Now, I know this, now I'm really, really skating on thin ice here because some people are not going to like this. In fact, last time I mentioned this, I had someone come up to me after and say, you know, you just attacked my mentors. I said, these TV preachers are your mentors? He goes, yes. Oh, well, I got nothing to say to you, sorry. <laughs> what is it they offer? They offer not just to have God, but they say, and you can also have all the things that you want. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and you can take pride in what you have. Now, let's just take a quick moment to, to peek at this. Cravings and appetites, lusts and desires, and pride. The word pride in the Greek 
alazonia is, is really best translated ostentation. Have you heard of the term ostentatious? Listen to this. Here's, what, here's, the, here's the definition. Ostentation is an unnecessary display of wealth, an unnecessary display of knowledge, etc. It's a display. It's like, look at me. Look, look what I have. Look, who, look what I can do. Look, watch me. Watch this. And we see it when, the, when, when we're kids. Hey, Mom, look, watch this. I can ride my bike. No hands. Ten stitches later. But it was pretty good, wasn't it? It's an unnecessary display that is done to attract attention, admiration, or envy. Now listen to this. Those of us who are growing in our faith, those of us who are developing spiritually, we understand that God has called us to walk humbly before God. And to walk humbly before God means that we don't want all of the attention on us. Rather, we want the attention on God. That's what it is. Isn't that what, isn't that what, the, what Paul tells us? Whatever you do, do it for what? For the glory of God. But this pride, this pride says it's not about God. It's not about you. It's about me. Now remember, listen, watch this, watch this. If you're going to have strong relationships, folks, a strong relationship with God and a strong relationship with one another, guess what? It can never be about you. The sinful man, the sinful part of us says, it's got to be about me. It's all about me. That's what this pride is all about. And pride in our achievements and our possessions, these are not from the Father. And I'll tell you this right now. Anybody who says it's all about me, anybody who wants to put himself first, anybody who wants to bring glory to himself, you can't have relationships. That's why you're struggling in your relationships. That's why you're having a hard time getting along with your spouse and with your kids and with the people you work with. That's why you're having a difficult time in your walk with God. You see what I'm saying? You begin to The pieces of the puzzle start coming together and you begin to understand why things are the way they are in your life. This is why shows like American Idol are such a huge hit. And you watch these thousands and thousands of people who think they're brilliant singers. And then, you, of course, you know how it goes. The first weeks of American Idol, we, we watch people who look like utter morons stand up and say, I'm going to be the next American Idol. And then they squawk like a chicken. And, and they think, well, my mother told me I'm a wonderful singer. Well, she would, wouldn't she? <laughs> and you've got America's Got Talent and The Voice. Has anybody ever heard of karaoke? Now, there's some people who really can sing. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> Why do you think Facebook took off? Because it, you know, okay, listen, I, I got, maybe, I, maybe I have to connect the dots for you here. But anything that is about me appeals to me. That's how it works. Anything that is about you appeals to you. Anything that gives you an opportunity to exhibit, to show off, to say, look at me, is appealing. And I know that some people say, oh, pastor, I hate the limelight. Don't put me in the spotlight. I don't like that. And yet they're the ones that have got the most posts on Facebook and Twitter and on and on. Because ultimately, we want it to be about us. 
Have you ever looked at what people post on Facebook? Just ate a cheeseburger. <laughs> Just had supper. I'm hungry. This is what's on Twitter, too. Oh, I'm yawning. I can hardly wait to sleep. <laughs> really? We don't watch the Ellen show, but we saw some YouTube clips where she, and how many know that everything on Facebook, unless you've marked it private, is for public consumption? And so what she does is she finds out who's coming to her show, and then she finds the most embarrassing picture she can find of some of the, her guests. And she'll say, is uh, Jane Smith here? And then Jane Smith goes, we got something to show you from your Facebook profile. And there's a picture of her mooning her friends or doing something ridiculous or dirty or embarrassing. And then she's shocked now that all of America has seen this, and now it will be forever memorialized on YouTube. Folks, we are exhibitionists. We love to say, look at me, look at what I am, look what I can do. And you see it on Instagram, you see it on Twitter, and on and on and on. Why, why do we do that? It's because of the sin nature. Now, I don't want to go on and on on this. I want to talk about God's solution to all this. God pronounces judgment. Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve have sinned, God says to Adam, what's going on here? What happened? Did you forget the command I gave you? You weren't supposed to do what? I wasn't supposed to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But you did, Adam. And Adam said, well, she did it. The woman you created and gave to me did it. So God, really, it's not my fault. It's her fault and it's yours. That's what we do. And God goes over to Eve and says, is this true? He knows. And he says, well, yeah, but I, I can't take all the blame, God, because you see that serpent, that serpent tempted me. And uh, you're the one that created that serpent, God. So I guess, really, it's your fault. Isn't that what we do, folks? It's never our fault. It's everybody else's fault. You know what I'm talking about. Ah, the pieces of the mysterious life of yours are starting to come together, and you're starting to see the picture of why your life is the way it is. So God says, okay, here's what's going to happen now. Genesis chapter 3. God begins with a serpent, moves on to the woman, and then moves on to Adam. And he says, chapter 3, verse 14, Then the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And then listen to this. This next verse is, called, is what we call the proto-evangelist. Proto-evangelion. And he says, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Romans 16, 20. 
That's a fulfillment of what we read in Romans 16, 20. The offspring of the woman is Jesus. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. How many know that at the cross, Jesus was struck by Satan? Satan thought, I've got you now, Jesus. We're going to kill you off and that will be the end. Well, the Bible says that Satan merely struck Jesus' heel. But Jesus crushed Satan's head. Some would say hallelujah this morning. Look at that, Genesis chapter 3. We haven't even gotten going in the whole Bible. And already we've got the gospel message given to us. Then he goes on to say to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. I've been there for three. I know it's real. And in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband. Is this news to some of you? (laughs) It's been in the book all this time here. Welcome home, Mr. and Mrs. Duick. (laughs) Congratulations. And you will desire to control your husband, and he will rule over you. That's what it says. Now listen to this. And to the man he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree. In other words, since you didn't give leadership in your home and gently say, you know what, that's not what we're supposed to do. Let's not do that. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. That's the judgment. Now, folks, what a horrible, horrible thing it would be if it ended there. But the good news, the good news that we preach in this church is that's not the end. It's just the beginning. John says this, in following John 2, 1 John 2.16, 1 John 2.17, he says this, and this world is fading away. How many know that? How many know the world can't go on the way it is? I don't, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You don't have to even be a Christian to believe this. We just know it just can't go on like this. And this world is fading away along with everything that people crave. All the lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It's all passing away. But listen to this. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Now remember, Adam and Eve hear the serpent say, when you eat that fruit, you're not going to die. Well, guess what? They didn't die physically right away. But they died inwardly. They died spiritually. And then it was a number of years before they died physically. And I'm going to tell you this. You and I were not created to die. But when sin entered in, we died spiritually and we died physically. And the Bible tells us that all of us have a day when we're going to die. We're all going to die. I'm going to die. You're going to die. And said, Pastor, thank you very much for that very uplifting <laughs> word. But you are going to die. 
But the good news is this, is that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, and if you no longer are committed to the cravings of this world, as John points out to us, and rather are committed to God, to Jesus Christ, and you can live forever. You can have what the Bible calls eternal life. But you have to do what God told Adam and Eve to do in the first place. You've got to put your faith in him. You have to believe God and do what he says. This is the test of love. So here we are in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve lost everything. Move to the New Testament. Now watch this. This is amazing. We move to the New Testament. And the Bible tells us that God sends his son, Jesus Christ. He's sometimes called the second Adam. How many have heard that? It's right there in the New Testament. He's called the second Adam. What does that mean? Well, it means this. is that you and I were born with the first Adam's nature. Which is what? Craving for physical pleasure. Craving for everything we see. Proud, achieving, proud of our achievements and our possessions and our things and who we are and look at me. And then comes along Jesus, a second Adam, who has a completely different nature. In Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13, it talks about how Jesus enters, begins his ministry. He begins his ministry being baptized, remember that? And then it says the Holy Spirit comes upon him, remember that? Everything's good, two thumbs up, everything looks good to go. And then the Bible says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit, is led into what? Into the wilderness, into the desert. Hold on a minute here, what's going on here? This doesn't sound like a grand beginning of any great preaching ministry. What's going on here? Well, listen, look, watch this, watch the parallel. What Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden... Jesus is going to get back in the desert. The Adam and Eve who lost paradise, we now have the Jesus, the second Adam, who gets it back. And the Bible says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River where he was baptized was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now look at that. It says that he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. It's God's will that Jesus Christ do this thing. And what is this thing he has to do? Well, it says in verse, chapter, uh, verse 2, chapter 4 of Luke, where for 40 days he was tempted. Now that word tempted in the Greek is actually the word tested. Adam and Eve were tested in the Garden of Eden, and now Jesus is being tested in the desert like Adam and Eve, tested by whom? By the devil. And the Bible says he ate nothing during these 40 days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So remember, we're, we're, we're saying that Jesus is very, very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. How many know what it is to be vulnerable when it comes to temptation? We all do, don't we? And here's Jesus, tempted exactly the same as Adam and Eve, lust of the eyes, Lust of the flesh, pride of life. So here, here it goes. This is, this is the temptation. Lust of the flesh. Verse 3, the devil says to him, If you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Lust of the flesh. Tell this stone to become bread. How many remember Michael Jackson? Anybody remember him? Strange little man with a glove and... Well, never mind. 
But he wrote a song because he was going to, he wanted to raise funds for the hungry of the world. In the beginning of the song, it says, he says, uh, turning stones into bread the way God said. No, God didn't say that. The devil said that. And Jesus says this. He says, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan tried to tempt Jesus, lust of the flesh. And then he tries to tempt Jesus with the lust of the eyes. And it says, the devil led him, verse 5, led him up to a high place and showed him. Take a look, Jesus. See. Craving for everything we see. Takes him up to a high place, showed him in, in an instant. All the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, look, all of this can be yours. You can be the master of it all. Take a good look. How many times have you been tempted at what you've been looking at? And, Jesus, and he says to Jesus, I will give you all their authority and all their splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Folks, that's exactly what Satan does in your life and mine. I'll give it to you all. Just do it my way. That's what Satan's saying. Jesus, do it my way, and it's all yours. And Jesus answered, verse 8, it is written. This is the second it is written. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. No, there's one more to go. The pride of life. Pride in our achievements and our possessions. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. In other words, show off. Show us, show us your power. Show us how great you are. Show us how wonderful you are. And then Satan, the crafty little bugger that he is, he tries to use scripture to prove to Jesus that this is all legit. And he says, for it is written. Now it's Satan is quoting scripture. First it's Jesus, now it's Satan. Satan gets right in there. How many know that that's how crafty Satan is? You, he will command his angels, Satan says, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Folks, that's taken right out of Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. So Jesus could say, well, you know, he did quote scripture here, so it must be legit. But Jesus answered, oh, thank you. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the Bible says, when the devil had finished all his tempting... He left him until a more opportune time. You know what that opportune time is, right? It's the cross. And he thinks, he thinks he's going to finish Jesus off at the cross. He has no clue of what he's about to do. I wanted to say this to you before I go any further. We're almost done here. Satan comes along and starts quoting scripture. Trying to do what? He's trying to justify the sin. I'm going to tell you this right now. We are all masters at justifying our sinfulness. How many know what I'm talking about? We can justify, we can, we, can, we can gossip and we can justify by saying, well, I was just sharing a prayer request. Did you pray? Well, no, we do that privately. It's the, it's the sharing of the great need and the problems and what, yeah, right. We justify ourselves. But I was hungry, but I was thirsty, 
but I craved it, but I wanted it. And why shouldn't I have it? I thought God wanted the best for me, so why can't I have the best? I'm a king's kid. And on and on it goes. Jesus said, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. I want to say this to you today. Adam and Eve messed up terribly in the Garden of Eden. But because God loves us so much, he sent his son who reversed it all in the desert. And what Adam and Eve could not do in the Garden of Eden, Jesus did in the desert. And he reversed it all. And here's what we know, folks, from what the Bible says. The Bible says that although you and I are born with the first Adam's nature, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we now get Jesus' nature. That, my friends, is the gospel. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means you're trading in your old sinful nature for a brand new nature. It's the nature of Jesus Christ. God's done his part. He sent his son, suffered, died on the cross for your sins and mine. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He took the death that you and I deserve. In fact, God promised Adam and Eve that they would die, that they would die spiritually. And you and I can get our spiritual life back. You and I can come to life again spiritually when we put our faith in the second Adam, Jesus Christ. That's what communion's about. We're going to take communion in just a moment. But that's what communion is all about. It's celebrating this brand new nature that's ours through Jesus Christ. So listen, listen to this, because a lot of people get confused here. They think, well, I, gave, I, I became a Christian. I gave my heart to Jesus. I said a sinner's prayer. But what follows, folks? It's an ongoing putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Which means what? It means that you believe God and do what he says. Nothing's changed. Not since the Garden of Eden. Nothing has changed. God commands that we believe God and do what he says. Our part is to believe him. Do what he says. Now here's the thing. When Satan came after Jesus with his temptations, Jesus had an answer for him. He kept saying what? Look, look what it says here. Look at this next passage here. I, I just plucked the verses out. Verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, read it with me, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That came from Deuteronomy 8.3, folks. Jesus is quoting scripture. Jesus answered, verse 8, ready? Jesus answered, it's written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That came from Deuteronomy 6.13. And then the third temptation. Jesus answered. Deuteronomy 6.16. I'm going to tell you this. The way that you and I are going to get victory in our lives and be, be victorious believers, the only way you and I are going to overcome the temptation that plagues every one of us. There's not one person here today who's never tempted. There's anybody here that's not tempted, I need you to come up here and finish this off. Because you're a better person than I am. The fact is, is we're all tempted. But how is it that we are going to be victorious? How is it that we're going to overcome? How is it? Well, by simply knowing what is written. Folks, if you're not reading this book, you're, going, you're in big trouble. I know that. If you are not reading this book, if you are not feeding on this word, remember what Jesus says? Man does not live on bread alone, but by what? On every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is it, folks. 
This is what you live on. And that's what gives you a victorious Christian life. Folks, this is, this is what communion celebration is all about. It's celebrating what Jesus Christ has done for us. Let's take a look at this brief video clip, and then we're going to take communion together.